If you would open up to Psalm 1, we're actually going to be focusing this morning on 2 Samuel 22, but I'm going to start in in Psalm 1. You know, sometimes uh, we assume things about people until we get to know more of their story. Um, If you were to drop down into the middle of my story right now, you may not entirely get me. Uh, I've, I meet people all the time that because I'm a pastor, uh, they assume that I was raised in a sheltered Christian home environment. Uh, but when they come in to uh, see the whole story, instead of just dropping down into the middle of my movie, um, they, they get a little more of who I am. They get me. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've ever walked in uh, your family's watching a movie and you walk in about halfway through and they're all into the story and you start asking questions and sometimes you'll misplace characters. That's what we can do uh, with one another. Part of my story, uh, my drama, has a scene of me going uh, to the church as a little boy on the Baptist bus in Bakersfield. And I remember going to church as a little boy, not being raised in the church, And hearing strange words like faith, grace, peace, righteousness, these words made no sense to me. I felt like an alien whenever I was at church going there on the Baptist bus in Bakersfield. But if you turn the chapter, another act of my life, at 14 I came to know Christ, And I began to read my King James Open Bible voraciously, and I began to get more and more familiar with these strange words, these religious words. Um, I remember growing in my love for Christ and feeling that Christ loved me. Uh, However, I would come across different passages in the Bible that would make me scratch my head or raise my eyebrows, and sometimes I would get the sense of dread uh, the term righteous or righteousness was, a partic- was particularly bothersome to me. If there's anything I knew I wasn't as a young man, it was righteous. And so passages like Psalm 1 brought me um, great consternation. You guys are probably familiar with the psalm as it starts off talking about the blessed man. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, uh, stand in the path of the sinners, and so on and so forth. If you meditate on the word day and night, you're going to be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, and I wanted to be just like that tree. And then it goes on and says in verse 4, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And verses like verse 6 would really bother me. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And the way I would read that is, I'm going to perish. How is it I get in on this righteousness thing? And I would do the best I could to meditate on the law of the Lord and to delight in it day and night and would want my actions to reflect my heart. And uh, the more I tried, the more I failed. 
On the flip side, I would read other passages that would bother me for another reason. I knew I wasn't righteous, but at least I wanted to be. And I did set out to obey passages like Psalm 1. However, David didn't seem to lack the confidence I lacked. He seemed so cocksure of himself, and that bothered me. Like our text, 2 Samuel 22, if you want to open up there, in 2 Samuel 22, we have a psalm of David, and I'm going to focus in on a few verses here, starting in verse 21. Psalm 22, verse 21, David says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He's recompensed me. And I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. And as for statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him. And I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness and according to my cleanness in his eyes. Fourteen different times in this little section of the psalm, David says, I, me, or my. Um, and it's verses just like that that would bother me. Um, but before we move on, let's pray um, as we begin to try to look into maybe more of David's story, instead of just dropping into this one scene, to look a little more of David's full story so that we can understand and maybe get him better. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would enable us through your Holy Spirit to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that we would learn today uh, that what we learn today would cause us to burst forth in worship, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Let the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. In 2 Samuel 22, uh, I want to suggest... Um, that to get the scene of David's musical montage and these verses about his righteousness, we need to zoom out and get a view of David's act and the broader theme that makes up the whole biblical drama. Then we'll have the equipment to zoom back in on this scene and enjoy David's delight. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of like focus on this section a little bit. We're going to zoom out, step a little further away to look at the big picture, and then we're going to zoom back in and see if we can get David a little better, and then finally ask, what does this all have to do with us? So let's, let's first, number one, let's focus in on the scene of this psalm. That's what you're, you're filling if you have an outline, the scene of this psalm. What we have here is a scene in a particular uh, part of David's life. And really, this is a musical montage that fits within the overall act of David. This is a psalm. It's a hymn. It's a song. It's, it's really theology with a beat. And when you look at uh, historical narrative like we see in First and Second Samuel, 
you don't see a lot of straight-up theological teaching. What you see is stories, but once in a while, you'll get something like this, a psalm that actually gives us a bunch of theology all together in a poem that would have been sung by David and then later sung by the people of Israel. And so what we're looking at here in this scene of David is a song. And it's the context uh, in, in all of 1 Samuel. We have to go back to take a look at verse 1. We'll get a little bit of the context there where it says, Then David spoke uh, to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this psalm has a, it has a context. Well, when was he delivered from all of his enemies? If you look back at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies all around. So the context seems to be um, right before the Davidic covenant, right before David has this desire to build God a house. But then remember, uh, the Lord tells Nathan to go back and says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. In fact, I'm going to make your name great and, and your seed will never depart from the throne. We call that the Davidic covenant. And so David... There's a good chance that David wrote this psalm um, in, within that context, probably when he's in his late 30s or maybe even 40 uh, years old. And so that would be a little bit of, of the background. Um, by the way, this psalm is identical to Psalm 18. It's, uh, it's virtually the same psalm. What, what you have here is... There's a, there's a few minor differences. This What we see in verse 22 would be maybe kind of the first edition that David would have written for himself, got published in 2 Samuel, and then eventually it was published in the hymnal of Israel, so to speak. And so there's a few changes in wording and spelling and whatnot. Um, and so you have two editions of this, this psalm. Um, but in this particular uh, psalm, David is talking about deliverance from his enemies, and he uses a lot of images about being sunk underwater and cords, and then God gets angry, and he's coming to deliver David. And so then there's this, this drama of, of David being delivered. His enemies are too powerful for him, but then the Lord rises up to fight for him. And then there's these promises that all of David's enemies are going to be placed under his feet. And then we end the psalm with this look forward that seems to look even beyond David to David's seed and to the Messiah. And so that's kind of the, the scene, a little bit of a closer, you know, closer look at, at what's going on. But let's zoom out a little more. Number two, let's zoom out to the act of David. And we th say the word act, we're kind of using the mantra of, uh, or the motif of a drama, so you have you know scenes and acts and the overall drama. So let's let's look at the the big act in the Bible that we call David. When you think back upon David, we remember him, don't we, as a shepherd boy who was anointed by Samuel, and then he goes out and kills Goliath, 
and teaches us all that we can kill the Goliaths in our lives. And then he establishes the basis for Veggie Tales and Superbook and all that kind of stuff. And, and David is the righteous hero, right? As a young man, he's this, this righteous hero. And it'd be great if the story ended in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel. Just put a nice bow on it, end it right there, and have the credits come on down. But that's not what happens. And so we move into 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it's just like F. Scott Fitzgerald says, show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. And what you have is you have David hanging out, not at war, on his roof in the afternoon, looking down upon Bathsheba, taking someone else's wife and then killing her husband in the most cruel of ways where Uriah actually delivers his own death sentence to Joab. And because David's plan is not going to work at all, Joab has to concoct a different kind of plan that results in the fallout of other soldiers also dying. And David thinks he gets away with it. But the Lord, in his mercy, sends Nathan to confront him with the story and David does say, I have sinned. And Nathan turns and says, your sins are forgiven. Nevertheless, warfare will never leave your house. And so then we have the fallout of Absalom. And then we have Absalom's death. And then we have warfare that never leaves David's household. The hero becomes a tragedy. So... On our first read of this text in 2 Samuel 22, David seems to be rejoicing in his own personal righteousness and asserts that God has paid him back for his outstanding behavior. But just a casual read of 2 Samuel leaves us thinking that David is almost delusional. As David, Dale Ralph Davis says uh, in his commentary on this section, he says, is David in verses 21 to 25 dragging in a Santa Claus theology of works righteousness? Has he become blind to his own sinfulness? These verses baffle thoughtful believers. How can David, who had Uriah's blood on his hands and Uriah's wife in his bed, ever dream of saying anything like verses 21 to 25? And that's part of the problem, isn't it? How in the world can David make these kinds of statements? But if you find yourself scratching your head and raising your eyebrows at such uh, verbiage, you are doing exactly what the narrator intends you to do. Your reaction, you are getting the hook that the Holy Spirit has set for you. There's something meant to catch your attention and my attention I learned from a Bible teacher years ago that if it's weird, it's probably important. If you read something and you're like, that's strange, underline it, study it. How are we to think about a king who writes a song that seems to delight so thoroughly in himself in his own perceived righteousness? And what does this song have to do with me and you? Well, that brings us to uh, the third Look, as we zoom out, we've, we've looked at the scene of this psalm where we've looked at David's life, the act of David and the biblical narrative. But now let's look at really the whole drama 
the whole drama is really about another David. And so let's talk about the drama of the son of David. The drama of the son of David. David fits a few chapters. He's an act in a big drama. And the big drama from Genesis to Revelation is about somebody else called the son of David. That phrase, son of David, is used 17 times in the New Testament, including verse 1, chapter 1 of Matthew. Listen to what it says in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So we're going to hear about a genealogy of Jesus Christ. So what would you expect the first person to be? It says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then he says the son of David. And then he says, the son of Abraham. The very first person mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ is David. And so there's meant to be a direct tie as soon as we start the New Testament between David and the son of David. Let's reflect upon this son of David in the overall drama with a little bit of a focus here on the New Testament that Jesus had a genealogy. He was a Jewish boy who heard the Psalms read and sung and who sang them himself, including Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel 22. Psalm 18 was on the lips of Jesus Christ, the son of David, as a little boy. And like any other good Israelite, he probably had it memorized. And then you see the rest of the Gospels and you know, for instance, in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is dialoguing with Jewish leadership, and he says this, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So there's an agreement that the Christ was going to be called the son of David. Jesus goes on and says, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, so he's prophetic, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies, your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So Jesus is instructing the religious leaders something about David and the connection to the son of David, that he's a son and yet he is Lord. Just like we sing in that hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, David's son and David's Lord. But how would Jesus teach his disciples to interpret the Bible? When Jesus wants to talk about the whole movie, the whole drama, what does he say the theme is? Go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 24 because this is integral to our understanding. In order to get David, we've got to get the son of David. And we need to get how the son of David interprets the Bible, the scriptures. Notice... What Jesus says in Luke 24, this is starting at verse 25. Let's reset the scene here. You guys might remember there's two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has died, but his body has disappeared and he's been resurrected. Jesus is walking along with these guys. For some reason, they don't know who he is. The text says that their eyes had been closed. But Jesus is kind of going through this little play act. See, Jesus is an actor too. And he's walking along and he's just pretending that he's not who he is. And he's asking them questions to kind of gain their understanding. But then notice what he says in verse 25. 
Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What have all the prophets been talking about? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? What, is the, what are the prophets all about? They're all about the Messiah's suffering and entrance into glory. In other words, his death and resurrection and ascension and kingship. Then in verse 44, when Jesus appears to the larger group of disciples, um, he has this to say in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. I taught you guys this, these things, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the what? The Psalms concerning me. What is the Torah? What is the Nevi'im, the prophets? What are the writings, particularly the Psalms? What are they all about? What's the big drama about? Me. Jesus says, it's all about me. And he opened, verse 45, their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now, just let me make a little footnote here. When when early believers, and particularly at this time when Jesus was talking to them about the scriptures, what was he talking about? And what did they understand? Was he talking about the New Testament? No, it wasn't written yet. We're talking about the Tanakh. We're talking about the Torah and the prophets and the writings. We're talking about the Old Testament. So he wants them to comprehend their Bible, the Old Testament. Then he said to them, thus it was written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins might be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so Jesus himself is telling them what the whole drama is about. It's about me. I'm the son of David, and the whole thing is about me. This is exactly what he had said. Remember, he says, I taught you these things. Well, where did he teach him these things? Look at uh, John chapter 5. You can listen or you can look at this. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he's talking to Jewish leadership, and he says, you search the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. We're talking about the prophets and the Torah and the Psalms. For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. You are reading the words, but you don't know what the story is about. You're reading, you hear the words, but because you don't know that it's about me, you don't understand. You don't get me because you don't know that the drama is about me. And he goes on and he says that Moses wrote about me, but you don't believe his writings. How are you going to believe my words? You know, isn't it, isn't it true? Like if you, I mean, just think of any book or movie some of you guys all have your favorite movies and stuff, and if you're like our family, you throw around movie quotes, and if people don't know that movie, they don't have any understanding, right? So if I say to you, your mom goes to college, and you have no idea what movie I'm talking about, those are just words. But if you know I'm talking about Napoleon Dynamite, your mom goes to college, now you've got a context, and you think, oh, that's funny. But if you, don't, if you hate Napoleon Dynamite, you don't think it's funny. Or if you've never seen it, you know, pick, pick the movie. The, the Jewish leadership, they knew the words of the Psalms, but they didn't know the drama. And so they had, had no context to interpret. 
This is, this is why David, on the day of Pentecost, the very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, what does he say in chapter 2, verse 29? Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and in his tomb and with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, that's his seed, according to flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. David wrote about Christ. Peter knew that. And the rest of the church got this idea. And so the Psalms themselves, Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22, is about Christ. Uh, the Psalms are the word of Christ. They are about Christ. They are from Christ. And to sing them is to rehearse the word of Christ. That's a pretty bold statement. How do we know that? Well, I think we've developed that pretty well up to this point. But consider Colossians 3.16. You can open up there if you want, or if you have this, many of you may already have this memorized from Awana. But listen to what Paul says. The word of Christ that is the word about Christ and from Christ, let it dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Okay, where are we going to learn about the word of Christ? Teaching and admonish one another in psalms. In the psalms. And when he says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, those are three different words for the same thing. It's the psalms of David and the various psalms that are written, singing with grace in your heart. Jesus is the key to the Old Testament. Jesus is the key to the Psalms. The drama is about him. To get Jesus is to get David. And then we've been going through the book of Revelation here for a long time, and, and Pastor Milton's just done a fabulous job. But you guys may recall way back in chapter 3, verse 7, into the angel uh, of the church of Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. You want the Bible to open up to you? You need to know the guy who has the key of David. We just sang this morning that it's Jesus who has the power to open the scroll. Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seals. The prefigured Messiah in the Old Testament um, also has a name tag. And so uh, let's, let's go back. Yeah, actually, no, we're going to hit the name tag thing here in a second. Um, so the overarching question that we want to ask as we consider the big story, the big drama about the son of David is how are these words, uh, how in these words is Christ speaking of himself? If we don't read it for what it teaches us about Christ, it will be locked to us. Just as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.14. Remember the Jews who were reading their Old Testament without Christ? They had a veil over their eyes. Remember it says, but their minds were blinded for until the uh, this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away, how? In Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies in their hearts. 
the last, when one turns to the Lord, that is, when one turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. So to understand that the big story is about the son of David lifts the veil off the Old Testament and off of the Psalms, and then we can go back and then we can begin to get it, because now we have a key. This is what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer argued in his uh, excellent work about the Psalms. He says this, if you want to read and pray the prayers of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, we must not ask first what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. And he makes that statement based upon the idea of the connection between David and the son of David. So let's reset our scene here to get the scene of David's musical montage in 2 Samuel 22 about his righteousness. We need to not just understand the particular scene or just the act of David. We need to understand the whole drama that the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus Christ, the son of David. So now let's begin to zoom back in a little bit. Number four, and let's say it this way, the son of David in the act of David. This is our, our subtitle in uh, point number four, the son of David in the act of of David. Were you to ask a first century Jew who the Messiah would most be like? Or even let's take it back 100 or 200 years before Christ. If you were to ask a Jew, who's the Messiah going to most be like? What would they say? They would say, undoubtedly, David, of course. He's going to be like David. And why would they say that? They would partially say that because the prophets put the name tag David on the Messiah. And there's at least four different passages that do that. You can write these down and look at them later. But Jeremiah 30 verse 9 is one place. So Jeremiah is written before the Babylonian captivity. And he says, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now you realize in the history of Israel, David's dead at this point. And so Jeremiah is talking about a future day when David will be raised up. That is the Messiah. Ezekiel 34, write down Ezekiel 34 verses 23 to 24 where Ezekiel, the, Holy, the Lord says through Ezekiel, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. The Lord has spoken. So from an Old Testament context, the Messiah was going to be someone who had the name tag David. They all recognized that if when the Messiah came, whoever he was, he would most resemble David. We see this also in Ezekiel 37, verse 24 and 25. You can look at that on your own. Um, and then Hosea 3, verse 5. So this is what makes theologians look back. They look at the David and the son of David connection 
And they'll make these kinds of statements. This comes from a, a favorite theologian of mine, Old Testament Hebrew scholar, Chad Bird, says this, quote, On the night in which Judas betrayed Jesus, him, or Jesus, Jesus quoted Psalm 41 in application to himself, quote, But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who at my ate bread, uh, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me, unquote. Chadberg goes on to say, both Ahithophel and Judas were close friends of David and Jesus, respectively, and had shared meals with their master, betrayed them, and both took their own lives by hanging. Then Jesus quoted this psalm, and he placed his own life beside that of David. He encouraged us to look from one to another, to note analogies, and to discern how the Lord of history long ago had traced the shadows of a messianic future in the suffering of Israel's king. In other words, 2 Samuel is to be read in tandem with the Gospels. 2 Samuel is to be read in tandem with the Gospels. So how should we read and think about 2 Samuel 22? If we're going to really get David, what should be in our minds as we read David? The son of David. David, we would argue, is the shadow the son of David is the shadow caster. When we read about David, we're reading in black and white. But when we read about the son of David, we're reading in color. When we read David, we should see and we should not look away from a great sinner. But when we see the son of David, we see a great savior. So to get David, yes, we look at the scene, we looked at the act of his life, but we, more than that, we need to see the big drama of the son of David. Then we zoom back in and we start seeing the son of David through David. Let's come back now to this psalm, 2 Samuel 22. And this is the fifth and final point in your outline, the son of David in this psalm scene. The son of David in this psalm scene. Let's get a close-up look and let's see if we get David better. The Psalms, as Colossians 3.16 tells us, as Luke 24 tell us, the Psalms tell us to leave no Davidic stone unturned. The Psalms make clear the messianic significance that is latent or hidden in the life of David. And so as we look back at our texts, I want you to notice some things that maybe we missed the first time. And I want you to look at verse 25 first, and then we're going to go back and look more closely at some of the other verses. Look at verse 25, 2 Samuel 22, verse 25. David says, Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes in his eyes or in his sight and I want to propose to you that that is the operative prepositional phrase in this section in his sight how in the world can David make these kind of claims given his background it's in his sight and we need to ask the big question, how in these words is Christ, the son of David, talking to us about himself? If Jesus told the disciples 
on the road to Emmaus, and he went back to Moses and the prophets and the later the other disciples to the Psalms and spoke all the things that were in there concerning himself, what would he have pointed to? And there's lots of things that he pointed to, but this could have been one of them. We know that there's at least two quotes in the, Old, in the New Testament from Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel 22. But read verse 21 and following from a different viewpoint as speaking of the son of David. Imagine the son of David speaking these words. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. Is that true of Christ? Absolutely. Verse 22, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not uh, wickedly departed from my God. Is that true of Christ? Absolutely. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. Did Christ ever depart from any of the Father's statutes? Never. In fact, in John 8, 28, Jesus has this to say, that he who sent me is with me, and the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Think about that statement. That's just mind-blowing if you think about it, that Christ can say, I always do those things that please him. Can you say that? I can't say that. But Jesus Christ, the son of David, said, I always do the things that please him. Verse 24, Jesus says, I was also blameless. This is uh, 2 Samuel twenty-two, twenty-four. 24. I was also blameless. The word blameless there is the same word that you use for a spotless lamb. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. You know, it's really quite interesting that this psalm is placed where it is. In the latter half of 2 Samuel, this is after all of the tragedy of Bathsheba and Uriah and Absalom and just the craziness of David's life. And then you get to the end of the book and there's this psalm that's like a flashback on his life that focuses in on God delivering him from his enemies and those that were too, uh, too uh, strong for him. And then this recollection of this righteousness that David owns as his own. And yet, when we, if we divorce David's the scene from the big story of the Bible, it does seem like David's delusional. Because isn't it David the same guy in Psalm 51 that said, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed? He had blood guilt on his hands. Um, and he says, the, he talks about the God of my salvation in Psalm 51, 14, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. In Psalm 4, 1, David has this to say, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David seems to understand something that he is righteous in his sight. He is speaking to the God of my righteousness. He had blood guilt, but he's been given something outside of himself. Just listen to this barrage of passages from the New Testament that put that word righteousness, that strange religious word, in its context, given the whole drama of the Bible. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be righteous 
in his sight. But then Colossians 1.21 comes along and says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Hebrews 13.20, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. In his sight. Back to the placement of this psalm, it's that, that the psalmist that the Holy Spirit, that the narrator of Second Samuel would put this on the back end rather than the front end should be a great comfort to us and a great comfort to David. It looks back to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. It also looks forward to verse 51. Look back at verse 51. He is the tower of salvation to the king and shows hesed, mercy, to his anointed. That's the Hebrew word Messiah, to David and his seed forever. God shows unconditional hesed and mercy to David and his seed, the promised seed that is the Messiah forever. This is what causes Martin Luther to say in his introduction to, the, to Galatians. He talks about this passive righteousness that David seems to get way back a thousand years before Christ. Somehow David was getting something that took others, other people and the people of God a thousand years to get. Listen to what Luther has to say. He says, As the earth is itself, uh, itself does not produce rain and, and is unable to acquire it by its own strength, worship, and power, but gives it only by a heavenly gift from above, so this heavenly righteousness is given to us by God without work or merit. Thus we obtain it only through the free imputation and indescribable gift of God. He talks about Christ is my righteousness. And that we have a righteousness that is above this life. There's As the rain comes down and causes things to grow up, so is the righteousness of Christ that comes down and produces fruit. We don't earn it. We don't merit. It is merely given to us. About these very texts, uh, John MacArthur has this to say, David was not claiming to be righteous or sinless in any absolute sense, but David believed God and was considered righteous by faith. And then in respect to verse 51, John MacArthur goes on to say, These terms are singular and thus do not seem to refer to David and his descendants. Rather, they refer to the promised seed, the Messiah, spoken of in chapter 7, verse 12. The deliverance and ultimate triumph of David foreshadow that of the coming Messiah. At the end of his life, David looked back in faith at God's promises and forward in hope to their fulfillment in the coming of a future king and anointed one. David was the shadow. Jesus is the shadow caster. David's life we see in black and white, the son of David in color. 
David, the great sinner. Christ, the son of David, the great savior. So I don't know about you, but this, this helps me get David a little bit better. It helps me understand how David could write these types of things because he understands that this is a righteousness that is external to him. And notice that he calls it my righteousness. He doesn't just say it's his righteousness. It's my righteousness. It's a righteousness that God gave to David that he can own as his own righteousness, a righteousness that Christ accomplished for him that he has now been dressed in. Well, let's, let's do some outtakes here, keeping with our drama theme. Where do we fit in the drama We've looked at David, we've looked at the son of David, we focus back in on David, but where do we fit in? What is the bottom line here? You and I can say these same words that David says in verse 21 to 25. We can say these words because Christ can say these words. Because Christ said these words, you can say these words. David is claiming a righteousness that has been given to him. In fact, notice in, in verse 33, he, he, he goes on and, and makes this even more clear that God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He is the one that perfects me. If it was all about David's act of righteousness, he would be done However, there was a promise made to him, and not just to him, but to a promise that was made to Judah, and a promise that was made to Jacob, and a promise that was made to Abraham, and a promise that was made to Adam, and a promise that is made to us. And that promise was not just made to the young man who tended sheep, And it wasn't just made to the young man who toppled Goliath. And it wasn't just made to a man who waited patiently for the Lord to transition him to king in spite of Saul's plots to kill him. But this promise was made to a man who lusted after another man's wife, who deviously plotted the death of this man's, of this man a plot that involved a massive amount of collateral damage on him and his family and all of Israel. This promise was made to a man who knew all the ordinances of the Lord, who had privilege, who delighted in God's law, and yet broke statute after statute, sinning against light and conscience. That's David. We need to pay attention to the whole movie. When I was a kid, I'd read, you know, look at David and his Goliath stories and say, yeah, that's great. I want to be like that. And then you get older and you come into contact with the devastation, the wreck that he made of his life. And I've got to be honest with you, I have not been a big David fan over my Bible reading years. But when you read his life in the context of the son of David, 
And then when you begin to look at how the rest of the Bible speaks of David, it helps you get David, and it should help us get ourselves. Look at 1 Kings real quick. Because, you know, this isn't just a... 1 Kings 15. It's not like the rest of the Bible just saw David as a dirt bag, and then all of a sudden you get to the New Testament, and now David's, you know, kind of like spoken of in, in these flowery type, type of language. You know, you have a, a new king. Abijam comes to the throne. And in the formula, he, verse 3, 15, 3, he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Notice, in the eyes of the Lord. And had not turned aside from anything he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah and the Hittite. <laughs> you see a little bit of the, the sarcasm or irony here? Except in the little matter of Uriah and the Hittite. In his sight, Christ as the son of David must impact our reading of David. Leave no Davidic stone unturned. <clears throat> Why would God view him this way? Well, David was wrapped in the robes of Christ's righteousness, and we can say the same thing. We can boast in Christ. God is treating you, he is treating me according to the son of David, if you've believed in him. Does this psalm fit more perfectly? Does it? talk about David or does it talk about the son of David? Answer, yes, both. Coming from the mouth of Jesus outside the tomb, we can see Jesus pronouncing all of the words of 2 Samuel 22. Because David is a great sinner, you can say these same words of yourself. And let me say this last two things that it's not like you know, God is just playing a parlor trick and, and he's just putting on his Jesus glasses and choosing to kind of see us righteous through the Jesus glasses. I understand what, what we mean when we say that, and I've used that term myself, but it can almost leave you with the impression that really you're a, God views you as a scum bucket, but when he puts on the Jesus glasses, okay, now he sees you differently and he's kind of doing a little mind trick with himself. The biblical idea is that the Father has taken the righteousness of Christ and given it to you. So you have it, and you can say, it's mine. A better analogy is you're wearing a robe, and it's on you, and that's the way you are treated. So when I go back to Psalm 1, for instance, and I see verses like, the ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I can say, I can say, that's me. I'm, I'm ungodly. I'm just like what the Bible says. I'm just like what Romans says. I am 
the ungodly, and if nobody came to rescue me, if, if, if God allowed my enemies to come after me and pursue me without any rescue or hope or help, that would be me. I would just be dust in the wind. But verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish If it were up to me, I would perish. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows the way of his righteous servant. He knows the way of his righteous servant, David, that is the son of David. And God is the God who justifies the ungodly. I don't know if there's, there could be any greater picture of the scandal of the gospel than for God, the Lord of history, to take a guy like David, who was this adorable little guy when he was a sheep herder, take care of sheep, who becomes a tragic figure, one of the most tragic figures in Scripture, and says, that's going to be the symbol of all saviors, I'm going, of all sinners, I'm going to cover with the blood of the Son of David. I am going to orchestrate a world, a gospel, that makes people look at David and say, What is going on here? And I'm going to save that guy. And then I'm going to have everybody else look back to him and say, That's a righteous guy to make everybody scratch their head and raise their eyebrows and say, I don't get this guy. And if we don't get David, it's because we don't get Jesus. If we get Jesus, it will unlock David. And it won't just unlock David, it'll unlock the Psalms. It won't just unlock the Psalms. It'll unlock the whole Bible because Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I just uh, pray that your spirit would, would aid us this morning, that you would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Um, in all wisdom, we need wisdom from your spirit. And, um, and that you, through your spirit, would teach us and help us to encourage one another with this psalm and with all of the psalms. And Lord, that these would not just be nice intellectual truths that lodge in our minds, but Lord, that it would cause us to burst forth in worship. Lord, that we would sing with grace in our hearts, knowing that we only stand because of the righteousness of the Son of David. And we pray that as we stand in His righteousness, that that would give us the boldness to confess our sins, to repent of our sins, and to love and forgive one another. Lord, we pray for those amongst us who may not know Christ, who may not know the Son of David. We pray, Lord, if there is any here that feels that they are too sinful and too ungodly to be embraced by such a holy God, that they would realize that this holy God is is willing to embrace them as an ungodly person, and to make them righteous in Christ. Um, We pray, Father, that you would help us as a people of God to 
to learn better how to confess our sins, how to repent of sins, and how to embrace our righteousness in Christ. We pray this in his holy name. All God's people said, amen.